The following podcast contains explicit language. Tell Mr. Trump you want to meet him. I love you, Trump! <laughs> Nobody use any racial slurs. Nobody call me the word. It's microaggressions. He does not support Mexicans, not Jews, not Muslims, not blacks, no one but his own kind. The rich. When Trump says we'll lose our country, that's not just a, I mean, maybe he's being a little extreme. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who wants to replace hope with grope, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So let me read you some names. Natasha Stoinoff, Jessica Leeds, Rachel Crooks, Mindy McGillivray, Temple Taggart, Jill Harth. Those six women have come forward to accuse Donald Trump of some kind of sexual assault, four of them in the past 24 hours. There's a running tally of these allegations on Slate that includes some others as well. The accusations run from unwanted kissing in elevators to rape, to being a peeping Tom with naked 15-year-old girls at his beauty pageant. The New York Times broke the biggest part of the story, and Trump had one of his lawyers send a demand letter, and the New York Times lawyer, David McCraw, sent a fantastic letter in response that you should really read online. It's one of the best documents from the campaign so far. It says basically that you can't injure Trump's reputation because he's already destroyed it himself with his own words. And then it concludes that if Trump believes that American citizens had no right to hear what these women had to say and that the law of this country forces us and those who would dare to criticize him to stand silent or be punished, we welcome the opportunity to have a court set him straight. Mic drop. I mean, what a great fuck you letter. They don't come much better than that. But the question I'm interested in today isn't whether what these women allege and the Trump denied happened. Of course it happened. Not necessarily every accusation exactly as the victim remembers it, because memories can be faulty from a long time ago, especially around trauma. But in some, these charges verify what Trump bragged about on the bus with Billy Bush, that because of his celebrity, he thinks he can get away with treating women not just like objects, but as his property. On today's show, I want to ask someone who's written extensively about Trump's view of women some questions that go a little farther into how attitudes are changing about sexual harassment and sexual assault and what that means for whatever is left of Donald Trump's collapsing presidential campaign. I'll be back with Michelle Goldberg of Slate right after we do the tweets. I hope. People are looking at the disgraceful behavior of Hillary Clinton as exposed by WikiLeaks. She is unfit to run. Very little pickup by the dishonest media of incredible information provided by WikiLeaks. So dishonest, rigged system. The very foul-mouthed Senator John McCain begged me for my support during his primary. I gave he one that dropped me over locker room remarks. I am not proud of my locker room talk, but this world has serious problems. We need serious leadership. Hashtag Big League Truth. The phony story in the failing New York Times is a total fabrication. Written by the same people as the last discredited story on woman. Watch. 
the media and establishment want me out of the race so badly. I will never drop out of the race. Will never let my supporters down. Hashtag make America great again. Listeners to my program will be no stranger to my guest today. She's Michelle Goldberg. She's a columnist for Slate. Michelle, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. What are we going to talk about? (laughs) Yeah, good question. (laughs) Well, I guess the first question for you is what do we actually know about Donald Trump that we didn't know 48 hours ago, if anything? That's a good question. That is a good question. I mean, I think that we certainly don't know anything about Donald Trump that he himself has not already told us, which is part of what makes his attempts to deny this, you know, flood of new allegations so ridiculous, right? He's he's being accused of doing precisely what he said he did both on that Access Hollywood bus and then also in that interview with Howard Stern, where he talked about how great it is that he can walk in unannounced on um, beauty pageant contestants who are now saying, yes, Donald Trump walked in on us unannounced while we were changing. And he's saying, how dare you? Whoever heard of such a thing? So, yeah, I mean, we basically we, we have evidence that Donald Trump is who we've always known he is. I mean, the Access Hollywood tape itself was just evidence that Donald Trump is who we've always known he is. I mean, there is a continuum that goes from sexual harassment, including some mild forms, all the way to rape. Donald Trump is being accused, and there are, in the last 48 hours, there are at least four new named accusers who've come forward, of a lot of different points on that spectrum, ranging from, well, there there have been old stories accusing him of gender discrimination and sexual harassment in a more conventional way. Right. There's also been old stories accusing him of rape. One in particular, and I think of the people accusing him now, there's a very handy feature on Slate which compiles all the kind of running accusations, but there's one woman, Jill Harth, who claimed, and and she's her accusation was earlier in the year, she said basically he tried to rape her. Right. Oh, no, I was talking about Ivana Trump, who who I think makes a pretty credible case that he raped her, although she says now she doesn't consider it rape, but she's never actually retracted the facts of the the story that she told in her deposition. Yeah. And that was a claim she made in their divorce case. I guess to, to some extent, people may discount that not because it was marital rape, which is not a reason to discount it, but because in the context of a divorce, people sometimes make very hyperbolic accusations. Right. I mean, I think that they discount it because she later came out and said that she she was speaking figuratively, that she didn't mean it was literally rape, but that she felt violated. But, you know, the series of events that she describes, which she still says happens the way she says, the way she described them, it sounds a lot like rape. Yeah. But there's there's still a big, big, big difference between someone who grabs a woman and tries to kiss her on the lips as as assaultative as that is and someone who tries to rape somebody. Maybe Donald Trump does all of these things at, at, and has done all these things at various points. But what's your take on him? I don't know. As a, as a sexual predator, I mean, is he, you know, what, where, what is his MO? What is his mode of behavior? I mean, I think that it's the same, you know, part, it's interesting. There's so many women that I know who've been so shaken by the last week. Um, like, I don't know if you saw Anna Marie Cox on MSNBC last night, like almost break down in tears talking about this. It's very, you know, and it's interesting that so many women have been so, to use a buzzword, triggered by this because, as you said, these aren't 
these accusations are not of over-the-top violence or, you know, of kind of terrible sexual crimes. I think that what what bothers women so much is that these are the kinds of intrusions or, you know, exploitation that basically every single woman has dealt with at one time or another, right? Every single woman has dealt with the lecherous older man who knows that you're in no position to say anything if he tries to kiss you or tries to grab you or grabs your ass. I mean, it's just universal. And so on the one hand, you don't want to use that to give Donald Trump a pass and say, this is just what all guys do. On the other hand, it brings up, I think, for women, such a familiar sense of outrage and helplessness and insult. It's not what all guys do, but it's what almost all women have experienced at some point in their lives and in many cases repeatedly. Right. It's the most common and banal kind of of predation. But I guess the question is we're, we're I think you would agree we're living through a moment of dramatic cultural change on all these issues where things that were considered normal deplorable, but to to use a loaded term in context, but part of the reality of what people dealt with. they uh, You don't want to say they were acceptable, but they were given. Mm -hmm. That's changing very quickly. And I guess the question is, how much is Donald Trump getting caught in a trap of changing mores that maybe, say, a politician who did the same thing in the 1980s would have gotten away with it? And how much is he an outlier in terms of his abusiveness towards women? Well, I would say a couple of things. I mean, yeah, a politician in the 80s might have gotten away with it, but, you know. I mean, Ted, but, Ted, but, Ted, Ted, Ted Kennedy. I mean, to choose someone who's conveniently dead and can't, can't be libeled. But, you know, Ted Kennedy always had a reputation as a, as a grabber, right? And he was he's far from unique. A ton of people in politics were known for this kind of behavior. Right. Well, but Clarence Thomas, you know, saw his career derailed for arguably less severe sexual harassment. Not um, sexual assault at all. Right. Just sexual harassment. I mean, and and I think that that's the important thing here about Donald Trump is that we're talking in most of the not all of these cases, but most of these cases we're talking about the workplace. Right. So in addition to the fact that he, you know, had his hands all over these women, he had his hands all over these women who were trying to do their job. He had his hands all over, you know, he was trying to kiss women who are trying to have a professional relationship. So he was, I think, unquestionably. Besides, you know, besides being a sexual predator, also a sexual harasser. He's someone that if he is in the White House, the White House will in and of it will it's become a hostile work environment in a way that I don't think anybody really considered it even under Bill Clinton. Yeah. Well, I guess you have to ask, I mean, why did Donald Trump buy a beauty pageant? Was that the best <laughs> business opportunity available to him? Unlikely. More likely, it was an opportunity for sexual harassment. Uh, well, I mean, as he would have said, you know, an opportunity to walk in on women naked getting dressed and right. do I mean, all the things that are now coming up. I mean, he boasted about that as being the perk that like when you're the owner, you get to walk in when they're naked. And, you know, in- including another thing, another piece of this that I think can't shouldn't be lost in all of the accusations, including walking in on kids, you know, walking in on 15 year olds when they were changing or when they were naked and making them really uncomfortable. So that's part of it. It's all, And then also, you know, I think he said on on Howard Stern before that his dream would just be to spend all of his time ranking beautiful women. And so you can see, you know, I mean, a beauty pageant was actually him in his natural habitat. 
Yeah. Well, uh, Virginia Heffernan, when I had her on the show over the weekend, had this phrase I thought was really brilliant. She referred to it as sadistic connoisseurship, <laughs> you know, where he's constantly rating women and avail- evaluating them sexually and physically, but in this cruel way where he's, he's sort of obsessed with saying, oh, this one's fat, this one's ugly, this one's stupid, you know, and he's... He- right. I mean, there's such an inherent denigration in the way he talks about women, right? I mean, even the way he's dismissed the account of... This People magazine writer, you know, look at her. Like, of course, I wouldn't sleep with someone like that. Just look at her. She's not, you know, she's not hot enough for me to sexually harass. Right. I mean, that's kind of I've written this before that the only his only measure of kind of female worth is that they're, fuck, you know, someone fuckable or yeah. unfuckable. Well, let's talk about you. You raised Bill Clinton and let's talk about that a little bit. And, you know, they're they're couple of issues here. I mean, one is that Donald Trump was, before any of this broke, was saying, you know, my my secret weapon is that I'm going to bring out these old accusations against Bill Clinton, which he did. He had a press conference before the last debate with three women who've accused, who accused Clinton of various things, including one who includes, accused him of actual rape. How do you compare what Donald Trump is accused of doing to what Bill Clinton was accused of doing? In some ways, the accusations against Bill Clinton are more serious, even though the evidence for Donald Trump's misdeeds is much more overwhelming, right, and much more dispositive. At the same, it's interesting because Donald Trump thought at the outset that he was, in as much as he's kind of aware of new changing mores about sexual assault, um, or his, certainly his team thought that they were going to use our changing attitudes about sexual assault against Bill Clinton, right? They kind of gloried in the idea that Hillary Clinton has said all victims should be believed. So what about Juanita Broderick? And I think it's really true, as some of the people around Trump have intuited, that the kinds of language and the kinds of rationales that were used to dismiss some of Bill Clinton's accusers in the 90s no longer kind of hold water, Right. Juanita Broderick um, says that Bill Clinton raped her in 1978. And then three weeks later, she went to a Bill Clinton fundraiser. And that was one of the things that was used to discredit her in the 90s. Well, why would you go to your rapist's fundraiser and continue to support him? And I think we now know that that isn't that uncommon, that people don't necessarily behave in kind of completely logical ways in the aftermath of trauma. The other thing that was used to discredit her was, you know, well, first of all, why had she waited so long? And also in 1997, she gave an affidavit to Paula Jones's lawyers saying that Bill Clinton had never raped her because the rumors had been out in Arkansas for a while. It was only the next year when she was interviewed by the FBI that she said that, in fact, he had. And her explanation for that is that she didn't want to be involved. She didn't want to come forward, but she also didn't want to perjure herself, um, which is to me, a totally rational and legitimate explanation. Although at the time, once again, people said, oh, Juanita Broderick, she changed her story. And so Trump thought, or not Trump, but the people around Trump thought they were going to use this tension and this contradiction against Hillary Clinton and were trying to do that. And yet the Trump's reaction to this latest round of accusations has, I think, completely blown that up, right? Because he's out there screaming, how can you believe these women if they didn't come forward 12 years ago? And he, he's using, every, you know, kind of inflated hyperbolic versions of the rationality of the of the language that was used to discredit Bill Clinton's accusers in the 90s against right. this, this new group of women. I think it's very difficult to say 
How can you dredge up these decades old allegations of these women who've never come forward and also, you know, in the next breath, threaten to bring forward some new women who've threatened um, new women who say that Bill Clinton assaulted them decades ago? Yeah. I mean, what you want to be able to say is, look, we're not dismissing accusations against Bill Clinton. It's it's entirely possible that he did some really reprehensible and terrible things. I want to talk about that in a second. But it's not an excuse for Donald Trump. And he's been trying to use it as more than an excuse. I mean, he's been trying to use it as a weapon. And now it is effectively he's saying, well, you know, you too to Hillary Clinton because it's her husband. I mean, you know, I know you are, but what am I is kind of Donald Trump's favorite mode of argument, right? I mean, he actually accused Hillary Clinton of invading his personal space at the at the <laughs> debate. Um, yeah, I mean, there's nobody who's worse positioned than Donald Trump to make an effective argument about the victimization of women. And then and also I think it's insulting to a lot of people that he now is trying to wield this cudgel against Hillary Clinton. You know, the flimsy rationale for that is the idea that she defended him or she worked to discredit these women. And I think that there's very little evidence to suggest that she did. You know, often people conflate kind of things that she did or things that James Carville did or things that the Clinton campaign did. The idea that you know, I take Juanita Broderick's story pretty seriously, but Juanita Broderick's evidence for Bill, for Hillary trying to intimidate her is that at that fundraiser, Hillary came up to her and said, thank you for all you do for Bill. And she heard that as a threat. And even if you believe that Juanita Broderick is 100 percent honest, you can also believe that she heard that the wrong way and that that's really a cliche, a cliche <laughs> that you would that a spouse, a political spouse would say to every single person when you can't remember their name. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing about the Juanita Broderick story that has never quite added up to me is I think without defending Bill, Bill Clinton in, in any way. I think he is what would have been classically termed a seducer, not an abuser. I've talked to a lot of women who worked in the White House, and they have, when they've talked openly about this, they said, you know, he takes no for an answer. So he would make advances inappropriately, and clearly he made advances to people all the time. But when they made clear they weren't interested, he didn't try to kiss them or grab them or, or and I think these things tend to follow a pattern. I mean, I think people behave in most cases according to a pattern. And if he were someone who was capable of trying to rape somebody or raping somebody, I don't think it would have happened once. I think it would have happened a lot of times. There's there are other things he did that happened a lot, a lot of times. And this one accusation from so long ago, and I'm not saying she's made it up or she's lying, but you know, memories can be, you know, can be very, very wrong about these things. And I just I've never known where to put that because I don't feel like it matches our other understanding of Bill Clinton. Right. No, I mean, I I agree. Bill Clinton seems to be someone who's kind of very hungry for affection and affirmation. And this isn't kind of his M.O. At the same time, you know, when I think about Juanita, there's Juanita Broderick, you know, she did tell a bunch of people at the time and her, their stories have remained consistent. And I can't imagine saying to her, well, I don't believe you because nobody else has a story like yours. Um, right. I mean, to me, they're, they're just, they're kind of two irreconcilable versions of reality. Um, it's very hard for me to know what to think about the case because I take that argument that you made totally seriously. And yet her argument also seems really plausible to me. To me, it's just we'll never know. But, Michelle, you know, the one thing that really bugs me is when I hear the reaction to what Trump did that, oh, men do that. Men are like that. 
I mean, no, they're not. Even among reprehensible, harassing men, Trump is an outlier. His behavior is so extreme and so bad. I mean, I certainly think so. I think that I mean, I think to me, there's a difference between men do that and most women have at some point encountered a man like Trump. Right. I mean, in the same way that, you know, I think it's 5% of men commit all the rapes or something. It's, you know, it's some small percent of men that's doing all of the harassment, but the harassment itself nevertheless is ubiquitous. Right. And and Trump might be particularly um, blatant in his sense of entitlement and his kind of, you know, unabashedness. But I don't, his behavior is not unusual. Um, you know, it's it's kind of what we expect of gross, lecherous, entitled men. Right. But that's I think you make the point that a man who goes through life behaving like that can affect hundreds or thousands of women through a lifetime. And that's that's hundreds or thousands of victims. But it doesn't speak to that being a norm or average in male society. You know, I think that a lot of women have been left, you know, when when people say, well, this is just locker room talk. And it's very interesting to hear all the conservatives defend this as locker room talk talk without understanding the degree to which that is a self-incriminating statement. Um, And I think most women kind of assume that the men in our lives don't talk like that. You know, the men in my lives don't spend a lot of time in locker rooms, thank God. But, um, you know, you they're know. <laughs> actually gay men in locker rooms. I mean, you can't, right. you know, you can't talk like, I mean, when I hear them say that, I, t- I take that to mean I feel comfortable talking like that in the right environment. But right. It, I don't think it's an dis- accurate descriptive point. Well, that's something I will have, I have no way of knowing. I certainly hope is true. But I think, again, it's so interesting because when women in the past have talked about, you know, sexual assault, men will come out and say, you know, you'll hear conservative men. Well, not all men. Not all men are like that. And in this particular instance, they're saying all men are like that. (laughs) (laughs) So, Michelle, as we said, four new accusations in 24 hours. Um, There hasn't been one. Check your watch in the past three or four hours. I haven't checked Twitter since we started started talking. Where do you think this goes? I mean, I assume, and I there are rumors and stories that go around, I assume there are lots more where these came from. And I guess the question is, is are there going to be more? And what happens? Is there any reaction to that? I mean, Trump just says, you know, much like Bill Cosby, not true, not true, not true. I deny it. I deny it. it. There start to be more and more and more women with versions of similar stories or parallel stories. And then there are Trump supporters who are in the position of just believing him. Well, I think they either believe him or they don't think it's a big deal, right? I mean, they still, you know, so what? He grabs someone's ass from time to time, right? I mean, to them, I don't think that that even if they believe, even if they thought that he did all these things, I don't think that most of them would care, you know. But they also do believe that these women are kind of coming forward as part of a media conspiracy to bring down Trump, and that's the narrative that he's really been spinning, particularly at his rally today, which was, you know, unhinged even for Trump. Um, you know, I assume that more women will come forward, although it's important to know that he, you know, has been kind of issuing these veiled threats about how he's going to discredit these women and how they are disreputable. Um, Lou Dobbs tweeted kind of about the personal information of one of these women. That's Lou been, Dobbs is an ally of Trump's. What is he on? Does he still have a TV job? Yeah, on Fox. On Fox. Okay. And so, you know, and so I think that women who come forward, you know, know that they are that there's real enemies and that they are, you know, putting themselves uh, at some risk. But I do. But the, but there's also tends to be a snowball effect in these things, right? That once there's a greater number of people, there's kind of safety in numbers and more and more people will keep coming forward. I also I have a feeling I think what happens with Trump 
is we tend to kind of quickly become acculturated to each new outrage, each or each new series of outrages. I mean, that's one of the things that's so pernicious about his influence. And so it'll take something new, I think, some new sort of revelation, something else, not just like another one of these women, but something of a, of a different type or of a different category, which I imagine is out there also to spur, I think, you know, another round of unendorsements or de unreendorsement, right? Like some of the people who who de-endorsed him and re-endorsed him decide to de-endorse him once again. Um, You know, I think that right now you see, like you, you, you don't see that much of a reaction to this latest round of accusations. And I think it's in part because Republicans know that their base is okay with it. We're sort of in uncharted territory, though. I mean, I, I sort of seems to me, you know, since the boys on the bus video that Trump is Unelectable. I mean, there's always an outside chance. You don't want to be complacent and, and so on. But you know, Hillary Clinton is, according to some polls, 33 points ahead with women, right? I mean, it's just – you just don't see a path to anything approaching victory for him. Yet we have almost another month of this degrading spectacle and it's degrading because it involves the degrega- degradation Trump has inflicted on women in particular but on the human race over over a lifetime and – we're just we're sort of riveted to this, right. but on, there's no profit in it. And on Hillary Clinton in particular, right? Because I mean, I've been critical of Hillary Clinton from time, you know, many times, and I haven't always been an unabashed supporter of her. But to ha- see the first um, viable female candidate for president have to call, crawl through this sort of sewer, have to endure this sort of sexual humiliation is so infuriating. And you know, she had to get on that stage with him. Last was the last week. She's going to have to, you know, unless he pulls out, she's going to have to get back in the muck with him next week. Um, there's just sort of, yeah, it's like we just kind of all have to grit our teeth and get through the next however many days. Yeah. Do you agree with me that there's a way in which she could skip the debate just because there's so little value that comes out of it? I mean, I guess with the, he would just portray that, oh, she's afraid of me. She's afraid to debate me. But in terms of what a debate is supposed to do, there's zero to the last one did zero percent of it. And there's zero chance the next one is going to create any value for voters. I don't think that she could skip it without seeming like she had been somehow intimidated, especially because there was this sort of idiotic conventional wisdom after the last debate that Trump had won, which at the time I didn't see. And these things are really subjective. And I didn't quite know what people were talking about when they said he won. And I think that the post-debate polling has borne that out, that most viewers didn't, and particularly most women, didn't think that he won. But because the conventional wisdom was that this was a great victory for Trump, that it like staunched the bleeding, the narrative, and I hate to talk about the narratives of if it's, it's some sort of independently existing thing and not something that is being constantly created by the people who talk about it. Nevertheless, the narrative would be that um, that she was scared, that he intimidated her, that she didn't want to face up to him again. Yeah, I mean, Trump's been going around saying if you the polls, the CNN poll after the event said she won, maybe not by as much as she won the first debate. But there was no there are no real polls that show in any convincing way that people thought he was the winner. He's going around not saying not just that he was the winner, but that he dismembered her or, or dis- vanquished her. I forget he's using some some horrible phrase to say how completely he destroyed her in this debate. And that's his conventional wisdom. 
And, you know, you either ignore it or you answer it or, it you know, it stays out there. I mean, I think she should do what she did in the last debate, which was to um, try as hard as she could just to not engage with him, you know. And I think that frustrated a lot of people because they wanted to see her slap down every falsehood and challenge every, you know, challenge every insane conspiracy theory and every leap of logic and every lie. And she didn't do that. She just sort of tuned him out. And I think she kind of just has to do that again and just get through it. And the the spectacle of her having to stand there and smile and get through it made her seem heroic to a lot of women that I know. Um, Michelle, thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. He, like Mark Burnett, has all the hot mic recordings of me, but I'll sue him for $5 million if he ever releases them. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Just do his survey, okay? He has some stuff on me that I would not want to get out. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The list of podcasts he's helped to make is almost as long as the list of Trump's accusers. Almost. John D. Domenico is, of course, our voice of Donald Trump. His impersonation is so good that people are flinching and covering up every time he comes in for a hug. And hey, don't forget, we have two live shows coming up. One in Los Angeles at the Now Hear This Festival. You can get tickets at nowhearthisfest.com. And we'll also be live on election night with Mike Pesca of The Gist at the Bell House in Brooklyn. The show is going to be plenty of fun. And of course, there will be beer. You can grab tickets at slate.com slash live. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. History lesson. There's a big difference between Hillary Clinton and Abraham Lincoln. For one, his name is Honest Abe.